This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. Over the weekend, the MP Nusrat Ghani accused the government of sacking her because allegedly her Muslimness was an issue and they thought that she didn't defend the government against claims of Islamophobia more. Now, James, predictably this has blown up because it's a pretty big allegation. What do you make of the whole story? So the, in the Sunday Times story, the whip in question was not named. Mark Spencer, the chief whip, then sent out a Twitter thread, which he deleted, but apparently seemingly not because because of, because of a kind of grammatical mistake or a typo, which he then reposted, basically saying that he was the whip in question, but he hadn't said what was alleged, and he considered it to be untrue and defamatory. It then emerged in further details that Nusrat Ghani and Boris Johnson had discussed this matter, that Boris Johnson had urged her to make a kind of complaint through the Tory party complaints process. She had not wanted to do so because she felt this was something that happened in government, not like a party matter. You know, this isn't like a kind of someone in her association saying something to her. This is someone who was, you know, allegedly said by the, the government chief whip. And this morning, we've now had Boris Johnson announcing that the cabinet office will be conducting an inquiry into it. So, and yeah, another cabinet office inquiry i think one question that this raises which is if you are a politician from a minority background do you have a kind of special responsibility to protect your party from charges of prejudice my sense is that that is not a reasonable expectation to place on people i don't think you can think that people should feel that they have a kind of special responsibility to go out and deal with that issue because of their, their own background you know, they may choose to do so but i think but i think feeling that it's part of their job strikes me as an unreasonable proposition i think it's another sign though of the tension in the tory party nadim zawi and sajid javid have both said that this needs to be looked into further you know even after sajid javid came after the chief whip had, had, had issued his denials and i think what this shows is that it isn't just the issue of, you know, Boris Johnson's leadership that is causing tensions in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. There, there are a whole bunch of issues, and you can argue that this is what happens when you have been in government for over a decade, and you've had so many big issues royal the party, so many changes of leader, but, you know, there is clearly a bunch of stuff to be address clearly a lot of tensions you know the times are reporting today that rebel mps are considering making subject access requests to find out what information that mark spencer the chief whip holds on them i mean this is and that would require emails and everything to come out clearly problematic and i think there's also this this, as we we, we discussed on before you know the whip's office is caught between sandhurst and an hr department and and it and it doesn't know which one it wants to be and i think the very hardcore take the whip away aggressive tactics that they used in 2019 as Boris Johnson was trying to show how serious he was about getting Brexit done I think that 
slightly turned them into one-club golfers with a kind of very simplistic view of party discipline rather than understanding that you need to take you know, a more nuanced approach to that loyalty is a two-way street. Mm. And Katie, where could this inquiry go? Because in the way that uh, Nusrat Ghani was told a story, it seemed like it was just her and potentially a whip in the, in the office. So it is just his word against hers, isn't it, at this stage? Or, I mean, it's obviously a very explosive allegation, but will we ever get to the bottom of it? Well, it's, at the moment, it's a bit of a he said, she said. So I think it's it's tricky. I think what it could come down to partly, though, is the fact that Nusrat Ghani says that she spoke to the Prime Minister about it at the time. So I think evidence of Nusrat Ghani speaking to people after the alleged incident happened is the kind of thing that would be taken into account by the Cabinet Office. And also, are there messages that suggest that one account is you know closer to the truth than the other? So, But as you say, I think it's one of those things that if both sides have quite different stories, it's hard to see how you're going to reconcile it unless there is some objective evidence. Otherwise, it might just be a judgment towards it. But I think ultimately... As James says, it points to a few things going on right now. Firstly, that the Whip's office is in a very difficult place. It's obviously a really serious allegation for the Tory party. Um, But I think the fact that you have so many MPs currently coming out at the moment and voicing quite publicly their grievances with the Downing Street operation, you know, allegations against Mark Spencer, the chief whip, that do bring in the Prime Minister because she says that she told the Prime Minister. He claims that he responded by saying, we can make it a, a formal investigation. But from Nisgani's perspective, it did not feel as though it, what, he was taking it so seriously. It does point to this sense, I think very few people think that they're going to, you know, have their career massively ruined right now from speaking mm, negatively about yeah. Boris Johnson and his top team, which points to Boris Boris Johnson's weakness. Clearly, you know, talking about this kind of thing is an important thing. We know the party long has a history um, with allegations of Islamophobia and previous, you know, promises and investigation into that. But I think in terms of, I suppose, the political picture, Nisgani is one of several, if you look at William Ragg and others, and some of these people are, you know, being sceptical of Boris Johnson, some I think, and I, I just think it points to general unhappiness and the fact that Boris Johnson, even if he does survive this, you know, this report this week, is in such a weaker position than he was, you know, just a few months ago, and um, before the Owen Patterson rout, I think it was when things really just started continuously going downhill. So he's going to find it much harder, you know, staying on as Prime Minister if he does to lead his party to enforce discipline and authority. Mm. And James, speaking of Nusrat Ghani, she also sits as a joint vice chair on the 1922 Committee of Backbenchers. And there are rumours that the executive committee of the 1922 Committee are trying to change rules for any upcoming leadership contest. Can you tell us what's happening there? Well, as I wrote on Friday, at the, at the last meeting, it was suggested that they should discuss a rule change that would suggest that would set a higher threshold if you were going to have a second ballot of no confidence in the leader within a year. I mean, the, the figure floated was 25%, which would be 90, by my maths, 90 Tory MPs. And I mean, you can you can smell out conspiracy theories or whatever. I actually think that the fact that these people were discontent of these people who are on the 22 executive reflects the broader mood on the back benches. It is worth remembering that the officers of the 922 committee are elected, right? And so they therefore, and they will have to stand for re-election at, at some point in the Parliament, and therefore they are particularly, they are aware of what their colleagues are feeling. And if they thought that taking the positions they were going to take would mean that they would get booted off, I think they would they would perhaps be more cautious about 
doing so. I think that if this vote does come, I think one of the, the, the one of the nightmare scenarios that worries Tory MPs is that you know Boris Johnson squeaks home. He says, "Right, I'm carrying on. I've won because under the rules of a majority, one is a majority." But you know, if you've had more than a hundred Tory MPs, more than a hundred, you know, what, what, someone who thinks someone who wants Boris Johnson to stay on, when they totted up the numbers, they had, they were at a kind of two hundred one sixty split, right? Is it really tenable to lead a party when 160 of your MPs are saying that they have no confidence in you? And when this isn't a question of a... I think this is what makes it so difficult. This isn't a policy question. This isn't like the Tory party being split over you know, imperial preference or ERM membership or poll tax or the Corn Laws or, or the Theresa May's Brexit deal. This, this, is, this is such a... The, it's the, personal. Yeah, it's personal. I mean, that, that is what makes it harder. I also think that you've got another problem for one of the reasons why discipline is breaking down is that ever since the Owen Paston scandal, to go back to Katie's point, you know, number 10... Johnson, Boris Johnson's allies made it very clear that they, they held the chief whip, Mark Spencer, responsible for that. The chief whip, the whip's office, made it very clear that they were just following, you know, <laughs> instructions. And, you know, right now, you know, anyone advised to see in Parliament sees this team of people, kind of Chris Pincher, Connor Burns, Nigel Adams, you know, the people who ran Boris Johnson's 2019 leadership campaign, the parliamentary side of things, you know, fanning out on the committee corridor in Portcullis House, talking to people. And that undercuts the authority of the whips, obviously, because, mm. you know, if Number 10 does not trust the whips to do this, what does it say about their standing? And, you know, I think we are in a remarkable times where you've got, you know, the Transport Secretary giving an interview to the Daily Express basically saying, yes, Boris Johnson knows his Downing Street operation needs to change and he's going to, you know, there will be big changes to it after the Great Report. It is hard to have discipline and authority when cabinet ministers who are currently very close to the Prime Minister are openly talking about, you know, who is going to be sacked and what is going to happen. That is not an atmosphere conducive to discipline collegiality. But as a human shield for for the man in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, but but I also think that 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 these things have an effect, right? Which is, you know, is it easier to be very critical of the whips if you think that there is distance between the whips and number ten? Now, Katie, let's talk about the Grey Report because we were expecting it. Well, we were expecting it last week and then we were expecting it early this week, but it now sounds like it might be delayed further because Sue Grey is speaking to Dominic Cummings today. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall in that room? Yeah, I think what's worth noting here is there was always talk that ultimately the last person Sue Gray would speak to would be Dominic Cummings. So one of the factors in terms of calculating when exactly this report might come out is, well, if that hasn't happened yet, the report, because, you know, still has some time to come. So that's supposed to be taking place today. Um, we know from the weekend that the inquiry is now also looking at flats in the Downing Street apartment. So two special advisors, Josh Grimstone and Henry Newman, visiting it during lockdown. I think they're saying that's a work meeting, but some questions over why that's taking place in the flat. So the scope once again increases, but I think the fact the Cummings conversation is happening today suggests it is nearing the end. Downing Street have wanted, uh, in an ideal world, though I don't think they'd describe anything about the current situation as ideal, but <laughs> in, in the world they find themselves in, that I think to get the report on Tuesday night, 
Prime Minister can look over it. And then on Wednesday, it mm. becomes public. He can address the House then. Mm-hmm. But again, once again, wouldn't be surprised to hear there's talk that it could be a little bit later than that and delayed. I, I think, to be honest, guessing when this report comes out is probably not worth anyone's time because it will change. But <laughs> but um, look out, I think, for Tuesday, Wednesday is the earliest. In terms of what this report is going to do, I think as James has written about, we know that the team around Boris Johnson are ultimately preparing for the scenario that there is a confidence vote sooner rather than later. So you have lots of his longtime supporters, people like Connor Burns, now Minister Grant Shapps, who did in the leadership campaign, ultimately did a lot of the organising in terms of the spreadsheet, keeping a track of, you know, he was where and which groups coming in to try and shore up support for the Prime Minister. And I think there is optimism amongst this group that when they speak to people, though, you have to take what you'll say to your face and behind your back as two different things. But when they are speaking to people, they hope that actually having a little bit of time ahead of the support has given people time to think, well, actually, do we want something else or not? But I do think for the reasons we're talking about at the beginning of the podcast, that widespread anger popping up in various ways, any vote I, I would find uncomfortable for Downing Street. And James, today as well, the Foreign Office has instructed their diplomats in Ukraine to start moving out. Is the situation getting very much worse? I, I think that what is clear is that the talks between the US and Russia have have not resolved things. I still think that, that you are in a question of, you know, can you deter? You've had both the US and the UK sending kind of lethal aid to Ukraine, usually kind of weaponry that would that would enable the Ukrainians to better resist a Russian invasion. You've had the, the British government accusing the Russians on Sunday of basically planning to, you know, install a kind of puppet government in Kiev. So the situation is clearly getting Worse, I think, as we discussed on our Saturday edition of Matthews, you know, it is difficult to work out precisely what Vladimir Putin wants. Whether mm. this is a bluff to get taken seriously, to get to a, you know, high level discussions on European security and in inverted commas, or just to expose fissures in the West, which you can see. with look at the kind of look at the, the the tensions that are coming out between Germany's slightly different position and what many of the Eastern European and Baltic countries would like to do, and the kind of UK's more forward leaning approach. So. I think all of I think this situation remains very fluid. I think there is a, there is there is a fundamental question which no one quite knows the answer to, which is you know, did Putin go into this tactically, mm. or is there a strategy here? What does he actually want? And I mean, also this is the other point, which is you know, you, you the, I thought Owen made on Saturday's edition of shots, which was a, a very important one, which is basically the more that Putin annexes those areas of Ukraine with a heavy number of Russian speakers or where people feel more ethnically Russian, mm. um, the more he actually cements the rest of Ukraine in its Western orientation. And I think one of the things that does worry him about the current Ukrainian government is that it is creating a sense of Ukrainian nationhood that spans both Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. And I think that, that is a worry for him. I think that, you know, to, to Putin, the idea of, of a Western-oriented Ukraine, you know, is a nightmare, but that appears to be where things are heading. And who knows what he would be prepared to do to try and stop that. But I also think it is very hard to believe that because of a sense of Ukrainian nationhood, that the Ukrainians would simply allow the Russians to kind of march in. I mean, this is clearly going to be quite a bloody war. And, you know, again, you know, 
do are the Russian public really keen on that as an idea? And what is the danger of domestic trouble for Putin flowing from that? And I think this is a big question, which is we know that you know NATO forces are not going to end up in Ukraine kind of fighting the Russians. But if you end up with a serious transfer of weaponry to the Ukrainians, again, that raises the stakes for Putin. And I think what you're trying to see is the West trying to do everything it can to deter Putin from attack, threatening kind of all sorts of economic sanctions and the transfer of weaponry. There's obviously tensions about that. Look at Germany blocking Estonia from transferring weaponry to, to Ukraine and that they feel that this makes conflict more likely, not less. But I mean, I think that this is clearly what you are going to see. James and Katie, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. And if you want to find out more about Nusrat Ghani as an MP, Katie did an interview with her for the Women With Bulls podcast, which we will link to in the description of this one. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.